say. That should be something that if you have a basic understanding of the Bible, you know that, you embrace that, that um, Christians should be reading their Bibles, that they should be praying for one another, that people should be gracious to one another, that you are called to live like a missionary, even if it makes you uncomfortable to go and tell people about Jesus, you are still called to do it and called to obedience. These are all things that should go without saying, but obviously the necessity to say them is there. So historically, what this sola, sola Christus in Christ alone, why it was necessary was to distinguish biblical faith and relationship in Christ alone from man-made religion of Jesus plus. I read a really beautiful quote about the beauty of Christ alone and why it was necessary historically, so try to follow along with me as I read it. I think we have it projected up behind me. It says, the heart of the gospel is not about us. The heart of the gospel is Christ for us. This was the essence of Paul's message that Christ came for us to do for us what we could not do and would not do. He obeyed. He was crucified. He was raised. He is ascended. He is returning. The medieval church turned the gospel into a message about what Christ is doing in us by grace and sanctification and about what we must do to our part in order to benefit cooperate with grace. But the good news, listen to the good news distinguished from that. The good news is that we have no part. Not in this story. We're recipients. We're beggars. We are not contributors to the story. What a beautiful quote. I usually like to camp out in one scripture when I'm preaching. Uh, we usually go verse by verse through books of the Bible, but when you're preaching on a reality like in Christ alone, it's impossible to camp out in one scripture because the entire Bible is about this topic. I mean, the entire scriptures from cover to cover, as we're going to see, testify of who Jesus is, and the whole book speaks about the beauty of Christ alone. So it's daunting to try to find that in one passage, which is why we chose many, though we'll be spending the most of our time about this transcendent, preeminent view of Christ that Paul writes about in Colossians chapter 1 and 2. So let me just say this before we get started. A lot of times when Sola Christus is taught, a lot of the teachings I did and studying I did in preparation for this, it's taught as if this is a polemic against Christ plus works. Um, that's just part of it. I mean, we already had that when we looked at sola fide and faith alone, that it's faith in the gospel alone, not faith plus our works that save us. We already saw that with sola gratia, that it's the grace of God alone that grabbed a hold of us. It's not the grace of God plus our works that saved us. What this is actually mostly about as we dive into this beautiful topic, sola Christus, Christ alone, is proclaiming the sufficiency of Christ and the all-sufficiency of his gospel over all things pertaining to life and death for those who would believe. As it is said in song, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, 
whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue could bid me thence depart. Or an even older song, full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And that's what we're going to look at today. Hallelujah, what a Savior indeed. Let me pray and we'll dive in. God, I I pray that as we look into your text and we look at this reality of Christ alone, that Christ would be so big, Lord, that we would just have this ever-growing, ever-deepening view of the all-sufficiency of our Savior. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So, just like when we looked at the way that the Bible is self-authenticating and testifies that it is indeed the one true, unique Word of God, when we looked at sola scriptura, as we look at sola Christus, the terminology might be something that the church developed over the years to help describe something that, though they developed it later, was clearly biblical, that in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. You see that so clearly in John 5, 39 and 40, where Jesus is talking to these people that are would-be Bible scholars, and they think that they really have a grasp and an understanding on Christian doctrine and the God of the Bible. And he's telling them, you search the Scriptures. Because in them, you think that you will find life. But you didn't realize that it's them that testify of me. If you had realized that, you would come and believe and find life. So this idea of Jesus plus is not a new problem. Though it certainly does exist in our culture, it's not uncommon at all to hear someone who needs to get their life together talk about how, you know, I just need a little bit of spirituality in my life. You ever hear somebody talk like that? Maybe I just need a little bit of church in my life. I need to get some some good self-help books or maybe just read some Bible passages that will... I'll mix them all together and then throw in a little bit of Jesus and then you throw in a pinch of New Age mysticism and voila, you have the new, the feel-good, new-goodery of today. This concept of Jesus plus is not even new for religious people who go to church each week or who read their Bibles on a regular basis. These people were in the Word that Jesus was talking to. And Jesus told these people, you're searching the Scriptures, thinking that your religion is going to do something beneficial for you, but you're missing the whole point of the Scriptures. If you've read through all of these Scriptures, and you didn't end up arriving at the preeminence of Jesus, then you missed something along the way because the whole point of the book is Christ and Christ alone. And these folks were really good at following rules. They were really good at doing church, but they were missing the whole point and they thought their religion would lead them to life. And Jesus is saying, look, everything that you've done, everything that you've read was all supposed to point you to me, for in me you find life. You see the same thing as he's walking with the disciples down the road after his resurrection in 
Luke chapter 24, as he's going down the road to Emmaus, it says that he began just opening up the scriptures to them, and he was explaining to them the law and the prophets. And all of a sudden, their hearts were burning inside of them because they realized that all of this was testifying to Jesus all along. And they were able to see just stars going off. They were able to see things connecting and lights blinking. And they're like, wait, this Jesus that we had been following around that was the hope of Israel, this Jesus was the whole point of the book the whole time. This isn't some fragmented book about heroes and moralism. The whole book was supposed to be pointing us to this Jesus. It's also hard to understand the necessity of Christ alone apart from understanding the concept of Christ being our only mediator. That's another historical reason that this was put in place. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says that there is but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So this really came, uh, this kind of crystallizes the whole problem that had to be dealt with by articulating in Christ alone to begin with. This idea of a mediator, it might not be something that you use in your average everyday language. It's not really a colloquialism. A mediator is a go-between, right? It's, it's somebody that has to stand between you and another. And during medieval theology especially, they started to cultivate this belief that God was too transcendent, that we couldn't come before this transcendent God because He was so wholly other. So instead of being able to go right before the throne room of Christ himself and through Christ being able to have complete access to the Father, they believed that there was somebody that had to mediate to be able to even begin to give them access to Christ. So they developed this theology of mediation and merit. So it was Jesus plus the saints. And the saints were mediators, and their prayers would end up giving you access before the Father. Or it was Jesus plus Mary. If you go to Rome, I had the opportunity to study there when I was in Bible college. There is actually a cross right in the Vatican that has Jesus hanging on one side and Mary hanging on the other side, making her the co-redemptrix in that theology, saying that you have to be able to go through the person of Mary to be able to gain access to the person of Jesus, and that that's the pathway to be able to gain access to God the Father. But it didn't just stop there. The priest was also a mediator in this System. I don't know how many of you grew up having to go to confession on a regular basis to be able to deal with your sins. And they were parsed out, right, in terms of mortal and venial sin. Well, there's a problem with that. Every sin is mortal. The soul that sins, it shall die. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no mortal and venial sins. Every sin is mortal for every sin ended up being responsible for the mortality of our Savior. He took upon death in order to save you from death because there were no venial sins that could just be wiped under the carpet with being able to say the right incantation or going to the right person who would be the right mediator to be able to give you proper access. And how do you know if that person was the right mediator anyway? I've heard so many people that grew up under that system say that they would go to the most lenient priest to be able to have their time of confession because they knew that this guy he would really dig into you but I know that if I go to this guy 
He's going to go light on me. So I'm going to do confession on Tuesdays because I know that old grumpy face is in every Monday and Wednesday. And I don't want a grumpy mediator. I want a mediator that's going to not only tell me that I'm okay and assuage any of my guilt, but he's going to do so in a way that's easy for me. And if it doesn't work that way, well, then I'm not going to show up until you get a better mediator. I just want to give you a brief tangent before I move on from mediatorship because, you know, we could chuckle about this. I don't know if we should or not, (laughs) but it's been so pervasive even into evangelicalism that I feel the need to let you know your pastors are not mediators. I hope you know my prayers gain no more access before the throne room of God than yours do. The only reason my prayers are effective is because I am covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, granting me access before his throne. And if you have been covered by faith in the gospel, by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have that same access to come before God's very throne yourself. I love it. when people, I'm not trying to tell you don't call me up and ask me to pray for you. But don't think that my prayers have some kind of magical incantation to them. Don't think that your pastor's prayers have some kind of magical incantation. The most powerful place that you can be if you need prayer is on your knees. And then find somebody else who you're confident will be on their knees on your behalf making prayers for you, but you don't need a mediator. That's the beauty of the gospel. The curtain was completely ripped in two, and now you have complete access before the throne because of the true mediator said, it is finished. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's Christ alone. And because he mediated, check this out, you can come boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy in your time of need. Because he's mediated, we don't need to go through any other institution to be able to gain full access before God. Because Christ alone has mediated, we are granted unfettered access to the very throne room of the creator of the universe. Because Christ has mediated, we are able to pray with great boldness. It was said of Martin Luther that when he would start praying, he was so bold that you thought that he would call down thunder itself. And by the end of the time of prayer, the sweetness of the fragrance of Christ was filling the room. Man, that, that's what I want said about my prayer life. Anybody else? feeling that, that I want to have that boldness where it's like, I'm, I'm going to call down thunder. I want to have that boldness where I could say, hey, Elijah was a man with a nature just like my own. Yet he prayed and the Lord shut up the skies for three years and then he prayed again and the skies were open. That's the whole point of that verse in James. It's saying, you're no different and he's no different than you. God is not a respecter of persons. Because of the mediatorship of Christ, you have that same access before the throne room that Elijah did when he prayed in that way. That's what James is trying to push us towards, to be able to see just how beautiful the gift is of the access that we we have because of the sacrifice of Christ our Lord. And check this out. While our sin might preach a word of condemnation over us, 
As the songwriter said, his blood preaches a better word. And his blood speaks not to our condemnation, but to our acquittal. And you want to hear something even more beautiful? You are never going to fall out of favor with this God because Christ is ever seated at the right hand of the Father and he ever liveth to make intercession on your behalf as your advocate, as your mediator, and as your great high priest. Hallelujah. What a savior, right? So when we've looked at what necessitated the statement of Christ alone, gave you a little historical background, now I want to look at why he alone is worthy. And I'll try not to break into song about that, but he alone is worthy, Christ the Lord. Oh, I want to sing it so bad, but I have, I have mercy for you guys. <laughs> I, know what I, I know what I sound like. <laughs> I know what my gifts are. Uh, so look at Colossians chapter 1. As we look at the preeminence of Christ, I want to look at 12 things that are true in Christ alone, starting in verse 15, going through 23. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in him he might preeminent, be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil needs, he has now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, and not shifting from hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. So 12 things about that are true in Christ alone about the preeminence of Christ from this passage. He is the image of the invisible God. Nobody has seen God at any time except for through the man Christ Jesus, the God-man, perfectly God, perfectly man, commingled at the same time, equally being both. He is the image of the invisible God. He's preeminent over all his creation. It means he rules over all of it. It was all for him, which it goes into more. It says it was created by him. So everything you look at, you want to know why in Christ alone is something that we celebrate, something that we rejoice in, that all things were created by him. He was the creator of everything, and you can have a relationship with him, and he somehow still calls you his friend. All things were created for him. All of this is going to be a gift back to him someday. It tells us in Philippians Two, that there is going to be a day that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the fact that he came and humbled himself, he is not going to be humbling himself in his second coming, but we are going to see just how preeminent he truly is and what it truly means that all things were not only created through him and by him, but for him as it's all presented back to him as a gift laid down at his feet. And it says that he's before all things. 
And you could say that in a couple of ways when you say that he's before all things. There's really two ways that you could look at it, and it seemed that commentators were pretty split, so I figured why not both? He's before all things chronologically, but he's also before all things in terms of importance and worth. He is before all things in that he existed before there was anything. He's the pre-existent one. He was not created. There was not a time when Jesus was not. Jesus always was. He always existed in perfect unity with the Trinity in all of eternity past and will for all of eternity future. But want to ask you, is he before all things in your life in the same way? I want you to really key in. Ask your heart these questions. Is he before all things chronologically? Does Jesus come, like, if you look at the timeline of things that are important in your day, does Jesus come before any of them even enter into the equation? If you want to give yourself just a couple of simple tasks, I mean, what do you look at first? His word or your bank statement when you wake up in the morning? What do you look at first, his word or how many people thumbed up your Facebook feed that you put on last night before you went to bed? Is he chronologically before all things? Does he rank above all things in terms of importance and worth? Do the way that you would answer these questions and the way that you would order your life demonstrate the same answer? This is where you really see if Christ alone is really something that we live by and not just theological speak. It's like Corey Ten Boom said that you never realize that Jesus is all that you really need until Jesus is all that you really have. Profound, profound words. He's the head of the church, it goes on to say, meaning that all things in the church should have a direct link and be directly correlated to Jesus. We don't meet here as a social club to be able to do other social things, just to be able to keep ourselves busy. He's the head of the church. Whatever we're calling ourselves the church, there should be able to be some connection to the head and say this is directly correlated and connected to the king himself. He should be the head over all things. On a church level, that's why the qualifications of an elder have so much to do with character and family. If you look through 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1 or 1 Peter chapter 5 or Acts chapter 20, the passages that predominantly deal with the characteristics of an elder, you'll see that they have almost everything to do with character and the way that they raise up their family. Because if Christ is not the head of your life, how is he supposed to be the head of your ministry? I'm so convinced that's why so much weak preaching happens in pulpits. Because if Christ isn't preeminent in your life, how are you supposed to be able to proclaim Christ as preeminent before a congregation of people? If Christ is not preeminent and head over your little flock that you live in under your roof, how is he supposed to be able to be preeminent in the way that you shepherd a larger flock? And why would God entrust them to you? But this is not just for pastors. By saying that Christ is head over the church means that he's supposed to be head over all who make up the church. So let me ask you a couple of questions to see where your heart is at and seeing Christ alone as your head. 
is Christ truly the head over your home? I mean, really, as you sit here today, can you say that Christ is the head of my home? And I want to I wanna ask in a certain way, I don't presume that the answer is no when I ask a question like that. I mean, I've said under that kind of preaching where the person is just preaching with this assumption that the answer is, hey, Christ is not the head over your home. I, I believe the best about you guys. I want to believe that Christ is the head over your home. But if he's not, do some business with the Lord. Repent. You have the opportunity to repent and say, Jesus, you are Lord. I don't just make you Lord. You are Lord. I recognize that you're Lord. Come in and be the Lord over my home. Is he the head of your household? Is he the head of your schedule? Is he the head of your finances? Is he the head of the way that you interact with others, even people that you consider difficult to interact with? Is he head over where and to whom you choose to invest your time? Is he the head over letting comfort rule your life rather than him being the head over your life? Is he the head over where you choose to invest your emotions? That's a really good one to look at. When your emotions get all cattywampus and killywackus, do you say, hey, do I just let these rule the day? Or does Jesus really get to be the head over the emotional output and how I let myself emote in this situation? None of us are ever going to do it perfectly, but Jesus, if he is the head over your emotions, do you know how many times that point right there you probably do, because I've probably done it with like half of you at one point or another. Just had to grab you and say, look, would you please forgive me for the way that that came out of my mouth and for the way that I spoke to you or the way that I acted? Because Jesus was not the head over my emotions during that time. My emotions were the head over my emotions. You also see in Colossians that he is truly the beginning of what it means to be born again to a new life that he might show that he alone is preeminent. Preeminent, if you're not familiar with that word, it means he stands alone. He's above all things. He, he's alone in terms of importance. In him alone, the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form it tells us. In Christ alone, he is reconciling all things to himself. In Christ alone, he is able to make peace where there was previously enmity between you and God because he has granted you access to the Father by way of the cross. I want to look at one other scripture before we close. Turn over one page to Colossians 2. I want to look at more beauty of Christ alone in Colossians. We see Christ written as the only one who can cancel out our debt. Look at verses 8 through 15. It says, See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head and the rule over all authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, but putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you have been raised with him through the faith and the powerful working of God and who raised him from the dead. And you, 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set him aside, nailing them to the cross, disarming all rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame and triumphing over them in him. So in Christ alone, our old man died to sin when Christ died. This is called our union with Christ. When Christ was on the cross and when he died, your sinful man was in Christ. You were placed in Christ. And your sinful man died along with him. That's what we celebrate in baptism. That when you go under the water, we're celebrating the fact that when Jesus died to sin once and for all, you who were placed in him died to sin once and for all. And Christ alone, when he rose and defeated death, that victory was then imputed to your account. We also celebrate that through baptism. That not only were we in him in his death, but when he walked out of that grave three days later, you walked out in him. In your union with Christ, you who have faith in Christ were in the resurrected Christ, is what Colossians 2 is getting at. In Christ alone, we conquered death because Christ has conquered death and made us alive. So just a simple question, are you alive today, Redeemer Fellowship? Are you al- <laughs> The next couple of verses are among my favorite as far as just a fireworks explosion of what happened in Christ alone on the cross. Again in verses 13 through 15. And you were dead in your trespasses and circumcision in your flesh. God made you alive together, having forgiven all trespasses. And look how he did it. He canceled out that whole record of debt that stood against you with the legal demand. So if you think that there is some book that's going to be opened against you that's going to condemn you someday, it's saying, no, I took that book and it says that he nailed it to the tree and he put it to open shame. And by doing that, he dismantled the rulers and authorities and he triumphed over them forever and ever and ever. And that is your reality in Christ alone. That through him, that whole book of things consisting against you, those things that you wake up that you say, I hate this about myself. I can't feel comfortable in my own skin. I feel like a square peg in a round hole because of this thing. I'm always walking around with this insecurity. He nailed it to the cross. And he put it to open shame, and it doesn't exist anymore, and he triumphed over it forever and ever in Christ alone. And you who are in Christ alone, his triumph was then given to you. So as I prepare to close, I want to give you nine fruits of embracing Christ alone from Colossians chapter 1. So turn back a page to the left. Paul said, starting in verse 9, and so... From the day that we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. Those are cool sayings, huh? Man, I love people that say that. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you too may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to the glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So nine fruits of believing that Christ alone, as we close, and Christ alone, if Christ alone is our head, it says 
that Paul's praying that you would continually be bearing fruit and that fruit would be increasing. Is fruit increasing in your life? Is there healthy fruit growing out of a healthy tree that is rooted to the healthy vine? If Christ alone is our head, we're growing in love in the Spirit. Would you say that your life is characterized by there is just a deeper love? I'm not getting harder. I'm not getting more jaded. I'm not getting more cynical. I'm growing more loving as Christ is working his self out in me and working out my salvation through fear and trembling. When Christ alone is preeminent, he causes us to walk in a manner that is full of spiritual wisdom and understanding. If Christ alone is our head, it causes us to desire to walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. How much more fulfilling and rewarding is that for a way of sanctification rather than somebody just wagging their finger at you and telling you, hey, stop being terrible. This is the message of the gospel. You're terrible. Stop being terrible. And then if you stop being terrible, maybe God will love you. Man, this is saying the exact opposite of that. It's saying if you really understand the preeminence of Christ, it fuels you. And out of love, you desire to walk in a manner that is pleasing to him. If Christ alone is preeminent, we should be growing in our knowledge of God, it says. Not just our knowledge about God. There are a lot of people that could tell you a lot of facts about God. I want to ask you today, not if you know about God, do you know God? Would you say you know God and you are growing in your understanding of who he is and who he is in your life? Number six, when Christ is preeminent, we are able to endure because we are strengthened by the power of his might. I love the next one. This is when Christ is our head, we're able to walk in patience and joy and thankfulness. And every single part of that syllogism is connected because Christ is the connector of it. When Christ is the head, check this out, this is so cool. When Christ is the head, he determines the course of our life. So I'm able to walk in patience, even if I don't currently like the course that I'm in the midst of, because there's a contentment in walking in what Christ has for me, rather than frustration in walking in what I think Christ should have had for me. They're completely different, folks. Contentment in walking in what a sovereign God has for you versus frustration in walking in what you think a sovereign God should have done for you if you were sovereign are not the same thing. And that patience produces joy because I'm not walking around frustrated all the time because God somehow forgot to meet my agenda or ask for my vote on how things should go. And that patience produces joy. And that joy produces a deep thankfulness. But it's cyclical because then that thankfulness, what does that do? That in turn produces more joy. But all of that is a result of Christ alone being preeminent. Christ alone is able to qualify us to share in his inheritance. And the last one, Christ alone is able to transfer us from a kingdom of darkness and cause us to walk in a kingdom of light because we have been redeemed out of this world of darkness and been placed in him who is light and in whom there is no darkness or shadow of shifting. Because of this quote, it comes from Martin Luther. I have a quote and a song lyric that says, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. Listen to that again. I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. 
and then also more contemporary. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my stone. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the first fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Therein the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ, concluding in no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Jesus, thank you. In Christ alone, we're able to stand because you were victorious. And because of your love, because of your grace, because of your mercy, the victory that you won has been given and granted to us. Thank you that we could celebrate that now through the partaking of the meal of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.